Hey, Jim Stroud here, and you are listening to the Chad and Cheese Podcast, HR's most dangerous podcast. It's awesome. It's colossal. I listen to it every day. You should, too. All right. That's it. What? No, wait. You said $20. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Keep that podcast rolling. Yes. Welcome to the Chad and Cheese Podcast, everyone. I'm Joel Cheeseman. And I am Chad Sowash. Today is a very special day for me and our listeners because one of my favorite authors of all time and favorite speakers of all time is on the show today. We all know him as Dan Pink. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. If, if he's one of Chad's favorite authors, must mean that he adds illustrations in his books. Is that true, Of Dan? course, yeah. <laughs> Especially the adventures of Johnny Bunko. That was, there was a lot of illustration in there. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, Free Agent Nation, big one. Uh, my favorite, A Whole New Mind, uh, Drive, because I'm in sales, uh, To Sell as Human. And today, we're going to do a lot of talk around when but until we get i mean give us a second first dan for all of our listeners who don't know who you are give us a give us a little uh synopsis of of dan pink will you well you just gave a great synopsis of of, (laughs) of daniel pink because um uh, i am a writer who writes books and you've just named all of them and they're books that i think go straight to a lot of stuff that that that, uh that you all talk about uh which is uh work how it's changing uh, how we can do it a little bit better? What kind, what sorts of skills do we need? How do we motivate people? How do we configure a workplace that where people get good stuff done? Would you consider yourself a futurist, Dan? And do you, do you prefer Dan or Daniel? Dan is good, and I do not I, I do not ever consider myself a futurist. <laughs> Fair enough, because you are quite the Nostradamus on some of these books. You wrote the Free Agent Nation in two thousand and one, mm-hmm. and it seems to be coming true. Did it? Has it come true in the way that you thought it would? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, yes and no. You know that book talked about the rise of all these people who are working for themselves, and at some level, I underestimated it, particularly the forces that were contributing to it. As I tried to explain what was happening way back then, that's that book's like eighteen years old. Yeah. When I tried to explain what was happening then, I said, "Well, here are the things that are that are going on," and I talked a lot about not only this. You know, it was a mix. It's kind of an intriguing mix of personal desire, self-actualization, people wanting to be themselves, those kinds of very heavy psychological factors. But that was enabled by technology. And uh, I totally underestimated the technology. When I wrote that book, it, it was a totally different world technologically. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling to me. I mean, there was not um, there were not smartphones. There was not social media. Uh, there, there was not there was barely Wi-Fi. There was not widespread broadband. Um, and yeah, were, were, were eBay resellers the inspiration for the book? Because that's, yeah. that's about the only thing I can remember back in yeah. 2001. Yeah. You know, and and um, so the technology has enabled this in a really, really powerful way that I did not uh, I did not really envision some of some of the other forces, you know, uh, basically the changing nature of, of firms and people's 
desire in a world where they didn't have any job security to do work that they actually cared about and that was actually an expression of themselves. Um, those things are continuing. But so, you know, I was I think you know, 100 years ago, I worked in politics. So I think that book is a case of what we sometimes say about politicians is that she was ahead of the voters. That's right. That's right. Former Al Gore speechwriter, correct? Back in the back in the pre World War One days. So you don't consider yourself a, a futurist, but yet you, another book you wrote. I think it was like two thousand five or six or something like that. A whole new mind. Yeah. And you talk about automation abundance in Asia, which I mean are smacking us clearly in the face today. Is it not? They are. Those are so. So that book makes the argument that um, the skills that are most in demand are changing, and mm-hmm. that. It used to be these more uh, metaphorically left brain skills, logical, linear, SAT spreadsheet skills. Today, those are necessary, but they're no longer sufficient. And it's a different set of abilities, a logic, uh, more, quote unquote, metaphorically right brain abilities, uh, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. Those are the ones that are most important because it's easier to it's fairly easy to outsource and automate those left brain reductive routine algorithmic skills. Yeah. And we see that happening big time. Again, let's talk about let's talk about what I missed. If you're interested in that, what I missed there was what I underestimated was how quickly uh, technology would be able to do certain kinds of these right brain tasks that I thought were way far off in the future. So Chad's always given me grief about not being a very good salesperson. So I have a question about your book <laughs> to sell is human. The surprising truth about moving others. Talk about that book and how all of us really are sellers and how Chad should shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'm going to weigh in on that second point, but I can tell you what the book is about. The book is, um, I'll I'll make a determination on whether you should shut up, you know, based when this conversation is a little bit more fully formed. That book says, uh, if you look at the guts of what people actually do on the job, uh, it's very different from what job descriptions say. Mm-hmm. And you, you all, I mean, this is probably intuitive since you guys spend so much time in this world. But um, I always had this, this suspicion that what people actually did all day, when you actually, you know, if you were to follow them around and watch what they did all day uh, and then look at the, their quote unquote job description, there would be a pretty large gap between those two. And one of the things in particular that I was curious about is that I had this hunch that people are basically selling and persuading all the time, no matter what job they're in, whether they're in sales or not. And so what I found in doing some of this research was that if you look at the lived experience of people at work, if you actually look at what they do when they come into the office and do their work, a big portion of it is kind of sort of like selling. And so so one idea in that book is that we're like it or not, we're all in sales now. There are still, even in a world of automation, an extraordinary number of people in the, in sales sales, mm-hmm. uh, even today. Right. About one in nine people in the U.S. workforce are in a sales function. Um, but the other eight and nine are also selling in some sense. But the other curious thing here is we're doing it on a remade landscape. Uh, it used to be that if you were to sell, persuade, you would you were doing it in a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Uh, today, that world is disappearing, and now uh, buyers have not much, uh, you know, as much information as sellers, all kinds of choices, and all kinds of ways to talk back. And um, and so the idea here is say, hey, we're selling all the time, we're doing it in a new world. How do you do it effectively and ethically? 
So going going toward going toward and keep, keeping the sales conversation going. Your book, your book, yeah. Drive, an entirely different book. Um, today, yeah. I mean, Joel and I talk about purpose, which is which is why people go to work, right? Um, and and how yeah. that most in, in most cases drive behind the drive uh, does it mean that it's actually dollars and, and cents there's more than just that so um the commissions behind sales really yeah. don't motivate people as much as the purpose and passion do so so what was kind of behind that book what was the yeah. impetus behind it what made you write about that uh, what got me interested in to answer your question was you know if we are moving was was basically its predecessor book a whole new mind which is that if it's right that we're moving to this world where people are doing things that they haven't been doing before, where they're, they have to be empathic, where they have to mm -hmm. be artistic, they have to be creative, uh, how do you motivate people to do that? And I went to the research to look at what the, what the science told us about that. And, and what the science tells us about motivation in general is very different from what many organizations and many companies believe. Uh, and as I said, uh, Chad, it's a, it's a little nuanced. I mean, it's fairly nuanced in that it's not at some level, money is a little bit of a head fake mm -hmm. when it comes to motivation. Um, what what we know is is this to make it as sort of straightforward as possible. Fifty years of social science tells us that uh, certain kinds of rewards that we use in organizations, uh, psychologists call them controlling contingent rewards. Uh, I call them if then rewards. Uh, if as an if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. It turns out that if then rewards are very good for simple tasks and very good for tasks with short time horizons. They're extremely effective. Uh, human beings love rewards. You dangle a reward in front of somebody, they focus. And that's good if, if the task is, is you're just following a recipe, uh, following a set of steps, or and if the, the, the finish line is very close. Um, however, the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards don't work nearly as well for tasks that are require more conceptual thinking, that are more creative, uh, and that also have longer time horizons. And the problem in organizations is that we use if then rewards for everything. Um, so what we should be doing if we're going to follow the evidence is using them for jobs that require simple tasks and short time horizons, but coming up with something different for tasks that require more complex thinking and longer time horizons. And I think what's interesting, sort of the connective tissue that you all are, are pointing out here is that if you look at sales today, uh, particularly B2B sales, it's, it, it's not simple. No. It's very complicated. It is. I think that B2B sales today is essentially management consulting. Um, you know, so you're going into a company and you're trying to figure out what are the companies, what are the company's needs? How do I understand that company's business? What are their what are their pain points? What are they missing that I'm seeing based on my own expertise? And how can I fashion a solution that is right for them? You, you know, and so and so for that kind of more high level um, management consultant style work, and especially if you're dealing with like much longer time horizons in B2B, heavy, heavy commissions is not that great of an idea. Uh, in the same way that we don't pay McKinsey or Bain consultants based on commission. We say these people are serious professionals and serious experts. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay them. We're going to hire great people. We're going to pay them well. And, you know, we're going to maybe have some variable comp tied to some reasonable measures. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to say that every single person in sales is purely coin operated and that sales is this kind of dumbed down profession 
where the only way people will perform is if you put a quarter in the slot. Well, and there were connective pieces there, though, right? The, the individual had to feel like they were getting paid a fair wage. So absolutely. So, so there was that kind of connection. What other connections were there there as well? In, in When you say connections, in, in what sense? So in, in the sense of if you did want to go away from this, quote unquote, oh, commission okay, slash it. bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, so. So here's so here's what we so here's what we know in, in, in as a general set of design principles for compensation. And again, there's a lot of variance from place to place and circumstance to circumstance. It isn't a case where there's a very simple recipe that applies in every um, in every situation. But but what we know is this: first of all, money is a motivator, right? And one of the things that <laughs> excuse me, one of the things that bugs me is that you know people maybe look at that book Drive and say, oh, money doesn't matter. No. I say many, many times in there, money yeah. matters. Money matters a lot. Um, it just matters in a slightly different way. Uh, one of the things that we know is that for, again, for relatively simple, straightforward tasks, getting people to think about money is effective. If I want someone to stuff envelopes, uh, I should pay them per envelope and give them a bonus for every 500 envelopes they stuff. I'm going to get more envelopes stuffed that way. Uh, but if I'm you know, bringing somebody in to consult with my business, um, I don't want them thinking about the money. I want them thinking about my problem. I want them thinking about the work. And so what you want to do in those cases is pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. Pay people enough so they're focused on the work and not on the money. Uh, once you do that, there are all kinds of things that you can do. First is you give people a sense of sovereignty, a sense of self-direction, autonomy. You help them make progress and get better at something that matters, mastery. We know from the work of Teresa Mobile at, at Harvard that the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. And as you guys suggested earlier, we also know that if people have a sense of purpose, that can be a motivator. And so you pay people well, you offer these other kinds of motivations. Now, again, as I said before, I'm not four square against any kind of variable comp, uh, but I think if you're gonna offer variable comp, it should be, the, the structure of it should be fairly simple, transparent, and key to things that really matter. One of the things that happens is every salesperson is that every salesperson knows is that you have these these commission schemes or even other kinds of incentives comp schemes, and you know people figure out how to game the system. So the designers of the system then make the system more complicated, and people figure out how to game that. So they make it even more complicated. A lot of these um, incentive comp structures end up needing this giant administrative apparatus to to run it, to monitor it, to litigate disputes about it, when in fact you can do something cleaner and simpler, pay people well, first of all, hire great people, pay them well, offer autonomy, master, and purpose, and if you want, offer some variable comp that's very simple, tied to me- metrics, that, transparent and tied to metrics that matter. Amen. <laughs> Dan, we love criticizing millennials on this show. And I, I want to stick with Drive <laughs> uh, for my question of, did you find any differences in terms of what drives the generations or are generations just a bunch of uh, baloney? Well, it's a great question. Um, it, and there's a, and there's, there's, difference of, there's differences of opinion on that. Um, I am of the opinion that I'm more uh, lean toward the baloney side, uh, baloney side of the spectrum. I'll tell you why. Uh, without trying to empty the room of your of your listeners here, but when you look at the research on generations, all right, there, there are two different phenomena, two different phenomenons going on here. Uh, one is one is called is is the cohort effect, 
The other is the time of life effect. Okay, a cohort effect means that, wow, I'm a Generation X guy. Generation X is are different. Xers are different from baby boomers, and they're different from millennials, and they're different from Gen Z. And the cohort, the 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 group of people who are around the time that you were born, are fundamentally different in their personality, in their in their approaches to life and work, and blah 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 blah. There's also something. The time of life effect says, hey, listen, when people are 30, they typically act in this way and do these things. When people are 35-ish, they typically act in a, in a way and do these kinds of things. And, and, and my reading of the evidence is that um, the cohort effect is woefully, 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 woefully oversold. I think that it's one of those things where our cultural view of it is very stark, but the evidence beneath it is very flimsy. And so to me, what you have is you have every incumbent. I, I believe that every incumbent generation since the beginning of human civilization has looked at the generation coming behind it and said, oh, they're not work. They don't work very hard. They're complainers. They didn't have it as rough as I did. They're soft. And, you know, and and, and I, I don't think that there are like massive, massive material differences between the generations. Now, that's just my point of view. I mean, I, intelligent people will argue the other the other side of it. It's commercial time. Okay, so we've already established texting is probably the best way to connect with candidates, right? Plus, next stats show 73% of professionals are open to receiving job opportunities via text. And with a 99% delivery rate, you cannot go wrong. Those are two big reasons why you gotta love text to hire from next. That's right, text to hire from next with the double X, not the triple X. Next has over 8 million candidates who have opted in to receive jobs via text, and you and your clients need qualified candidates. Next can help you find and target qualified candidates who have opted in for job opportunities via text. And in today's competitive market, you need an edge to reach qualified candidates faster. You need text to hire from Next. Just go to chadcheese.com and click on the next logo to learn more about how you can gain a competitive edge with opt-in texting. Text to hire from Next. It just makes sense. It's showtime. So here's here is a a big difference, Dan, and we're gonna switch to your. And I think there is one. I think there is one big difference, but we can get to that. Yeah, no, we're gonna get to it right now. In your book, when. Um, if you think about it, boomers went to college and they weren't strapped with a crazy amount of debt versus millennials yeah, who were living in their mom and dad's basement because they had a yeah. hundred thousand dollars in debt, right? Yeah. So the yeah, opportunity for boomers and Xers were much different from that of millennials. So in your new book, in when you talk about this. So dive deep into that if you would, because time timing matters. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um it actually wasn't what I was going to say. I was uh, I was going to make a, a less intelligent point, but thank you for rescuing me. The um, so so what that research shows is there's some very intriguing research. It's in economics about um, how important the condition of the economy is the year you graduate from. from these are from people who graduate from college, from college graduates. Um, how much the the economic conditions when you graduate from college, how those have a profound long term effect on your earnings power. Um, and what this research is, shows is that um, if you take two people, okay, person, person, you know, X, I don't want to say X and Y here, uh, person uh, J 
graduates mm-hmm. in a recession and person K graduates in a boom time. And let's say that each of these people are, are you know, fairly similar. They, you know, they have, um, they're, they're smart people, um, graduated near the top of their class at the University of Maryland with a major in accounting or something like that. All right. Uh, that uh, on average, the person who graduated in the boom economy will be out earning. And you look at them 20 years later in their careers, 20 years into the careers, the person who graduated in a boom economy is going to be out earning the person who graduated in a recession. Uh-huh. 20 years later, the cost of graduating in a recession can be upwards of several hundred thousand dollars in lifetime earnings. Well, let's let's put let's put this to another level. Yeah. The the idiot who graduated in a boom economy is probably going to make more money than the standout who maybe uh, yeah, possibly who who graduates in, in a recession. Opportunity and timing means a lot, or at least that's how I read into it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of comparison, that kind of comparison is 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 tougher. But I mean, but basically, you, you take somebody. Let, let's 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 take a you know mediocre talent graduating. If you're a mediocre for all the mediocrity listening to your show, <laughs> you're, if you are a mediocre college graduate with with not a lot of uh, brain power or skills, make sure you graduate in a booming economy. That's my advice to you, young men and women. Do you guys remember the old uh, Saturday Night Live when Eddie Murphy goes on and says, life is luck. You're either lucky or you're a bum. And his, his driver comes out and he says, yeah, or your, your car is ready, Mr. Murphy. And he says, thanks, Sammy. He says, Sammy went to Harvard. Do you guys remember that skit? <laughs> yes. No. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Never mind. But I mean, here's the yeah. thing. Like, I, I, the deeper point is really, really important is that is that we have in our in the stories that we tell ourselves and each other about who flourishes and who doesn't. We mm-hmm. we we leave out two very important factors. One of them is where do you start from, and the other one is just pure unadulterated luck. All right. And so and I think about this all that I think about this all the time. Um, if you take I'll use me as an example. All right. So I grew up in central Ohio. All right. I uh, grew up in a middle class family in central Ohio um, in post World War Two, you know, 1970s, 1980s America. All right. And my parents both had a college education. All right. I won the birth lottery. All right. If I had been born in Guatemala to people without a college education, who knows where I would be today? Right. You know what I mean? Are you a Northwestern grad that roots for Ohio State? Oh, that's a more important question, obviously. And I am absolutely not a Northwestern grad who roots for Ohio State. <laughs> I, I take the purple and white over the scarlet and gray. Why are we talking to this bum yeah, so much? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Probably the problem is that Northwestern never beats Ohio State. No, no, but they, yeah, they have they have a pretty good school though. <laughs> um, so let's let's keep talking about the kids, right? Since we're talking about Ohio State and, and Northwestern, yeah. um, in the book, you actually, and I'm going to try to correlate this to the workforce. You actually said that more recess is best. Um, yeah. You know, what about in our work schedule? I mean, is can, point, yeah. can we have a better attitude? Can we get more out of our workers if we just allow them to relax more often, like the research showed with uh, kids in, in recess? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, here's here's what we know. There's a whole there's a whole line of research about about breaks. And and what we know in general about breaks is that uh, breaks are more important than we realize. 
breaks matter more than we than we, than we realize. And this is something that this is this whole conversation about all the things I got wrong. This is something else I got wrong in my own life in that I was always someone who believed that the way to get more work done, the way to get better work done was to power through uh, that, that 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 breaks were for amateurs, that professionals didn't take breaks. That's what experts did, right? Because we had boomers telling us, "Get off your ass and go to work." It could be, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and when you look at the when you look, but when you look at the evidence, all right, like the real science of people who who have looked at human performance, it turns out that's totally, totally, totally wrong. That powering through is not the best way to get more work done and better work done. That I actually had it, I actually had it completely flipped. In that, the truth is that professionals take breaks and amateurs don't take breaks. So what we should be doing um, is actually taking. I'm not talking about going crazy and you know having like four hour breaks every afternoon. What I'm talking about is actually building in a few breaks into our work lives because we are going to feel better and we are going to do better. And what we know about breaks from this research is that. We have some good design principles for effective breaks. We know that, for instance, something is better than nothing. Uh, so, it, you know, you know, a, literally a one-minute break is better than no break at all. Mm-hmm. We know that social is better than solo. So breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. We know that uh, breaks should be fully detached, not semi-detached. So you shouldn't talk about work. You shouldn't stare at your phone. We know that breaks outside are better than inside and breaks where you're moving are better than breaks when you're stationary. And so basically what this says is that we would have across the U.S. workforce, no joke, we would have greater productivity, greater satisfaction, greater engagement if everybody in the U.S. workforce each afternoon took a 15 minute walk outside with someone they liked, leaving their phone behind and talking about something other than work. That would be a pro- that would be a productivity enhancer for the U.S. workforce. Now, Dan, as as a guy who loves a good nap, are you including <laughs> naps in these breaks? Well, you know what, I did some. I, I looked at the research on naps, and um, uh, you know what, I was anti nap, and now I'm not anti nap. Naps are actually. <laughs> Now, Dan, I like Dan, I'm not going to be able to get anything out of Joel now. He's gonna he's gonna have three hour breaks and. Here's the thing. Let's go back to the science here. What we know about naps is that the ideal nap is actually very short. Uh, The ideal nap is between 10 and 20 minutes long. Uh, Nap longer than 20 minutes and you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you sleep too long. Uh, but a 10 to 20 minute nap is is, uh, in the afternoon is very, very good for us. But again, you have to hit that sweet spot. Uh, Two, uh, less than 10 minutes isn't, isn't, doesn't do you any good. And over 20 minutes, it does you some good, but you actually, it actually comes with a negative. The idea, the sweet spot is between 10 and 20 minutes. <laughs> so, so for a guy with some, with smaller kids or younger kids and, and Chad has kids, but they're a little older for those with younger kids, you seem to have a pretty good grasp of, of the future of jobs and your book on right brains and timing. Um, like what advice and what kind of road should I be steering my kids down as they get older and look to join the workforce? Yeah, that's a hard one because it's hard to predict. You know, we don't have any idea what kind of what the job, the specific jobs are going to be, you know. Um, so I'm not going to say, oh, your kid should be lunar hospitality <laughs> consultants because we're going to colonize the moon and hotels there. You know, that's just that's that's nonsense. I think what we know 
is um, we, we know at the level of skill that your kids and, and my kids who are older, but are you know going to be in the workplace for a long time, um, they're going to have to do things that uh, augment machine intelligence rather than compete with machine intelligence, uh, which are, you know, tend to be more of these right brain things, um, uh, discernment, judgment, creativity, uh, th- those kinds of those kinds of tasks. I think beyond that, there are a lot of these so-called I hate the term, but it, it shows you what kind of sort of prison we're in. In, in how we in, or how constipated we are in the way we think about this is what are what are called quote unquote non cognitive skills, uh, and so what you want is you want kids to be curious, uh, you want them to know how to learn, you want them to be able to ask good questions, you want them to be uh, persistent and have grit and have a growth mindset. Um, that those kinds of habits of the heart, um, particularly the ability, particularly you know curiosity, grit. And uh, learning how to learn, those are those are going to be as important as any specific particular skill. Talk about age and well-being, because there's this dip that happens. We're really yeah. happy in our 20s because we have no clue what's going on in the middle of life, right. 30s, <laughs> 40s, 50s, early 50s. And we have this big droop because we're just not we're not meeting expectations. But then it then it skyrockets up. So tell us a little bit about kind of like this midlife group or midlife crisis droop thing. Yeah, this is something that they're all, like, that researchers all over the world have, have have found. When you look at people's sense of well-being, sense of satisfaction over time, it's exactly as you say. Uh, it's, it's shaped like a gentle sloping U. People are happier in their 20s and 30s, starts declining in their 40s, hits the bottom in their 50s, and then rises back up. Um, and I think what's curious about this is that the scholars who have investigated this have found this in something like 70 countries. Um, and I don't think we know why exactly it happens. Um, but, um, you know, but, but it is, it does seem to be, uh, it does seem to be a part of the human, you know, the lived experiences of human beings in the 21st century. Um, you know, as for the reasons, again, we don't know the reasons for sure. Um, part of it is that it could be dual pressure. So at that age, you often people will often have kids and aging parents. So they're squeezed on on both ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be that you know there's a certain kind of reckoning that people tend to have at that part of life, and that they realize, hey, wait a second, I've been cr- I've been climbing the greasy pole of this company, and wait a second, only one person gets to be CEO. And it's not going to be me. Or you're a writer in Washington, D.C., and you think, you know what? I'm probably not going to win a Pulitzer Prize in my lifetime. Just to take a totally hypothetical example. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that's sort of that, that you know, that, that um, you know, at some level early on, our expectations are too high. In our 50s, sometimes our expectations are too low. And what you see is that when people in their 60s and 70s in general um, are actually fairly happy and satisfied. Um, and, and a reason for that is that they have. Um, matured into doing things that are meaningful to them. Um, they have, in, in many cases, some really, really interesting research from Laura Carstensen at Stanford. They've actually um, uh, have a very different approach to their friendship networks. That is, they have gotten rid of a lot of their friends and concentrated on the people whom they're closest to. And that's a big source of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and so I just think it's something for us to think about, particularly when, you know, I'm at the age where I'm basically at the smack dab bottom of that U-shaped curve. 
In the new book, after each chapter, you have what you call life hacks. What were, what were the inspiration behind those and what were maybe one or two that, that you would like to highlight for the interview here today? Well, I mean, the idea here, the, 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 the inspiration was is that you, you, you can write about science, you can write about research, you can write about ideas, and that's cool and that's interesting and you want people to learn. But if you just leave people hanging there with nothing to do about it, then I think you're doing your readers a disservice. Uh, I certainly feel that way about certain kinds of books. I'll read the books and I will say, wow, it's a big idea book. Wow, this is interesting. Wow, what a persuasive argument. Wow, I'm looking at the world in a different way. And then I say, wow, I should probably do things differently. And the book ends and I have no idea what to do. <laughs> um, you know, um, and so so each chapter ends at what, what I call the Time Hacker's Handbook, which is a set of these tools and tips. I mean, they're all they're gazillions, not gazillions, but they're dozens and dozens of them. I mean, one of my one of the things that people seem to be interested in is I have a whole chapter on on how our brain power changes over the course of a day and how, you know, some guidance on what's the right time to do certain kinds of cognitive tasks. But one thing that people seem really interested in is is exercise. Uh, what's the best time of day to exercise? And here in the Time Hacker's Handbook, uh, there's some good uh, evidence-based advice on the best time to exercise. It's very simple. Um, you should exercise in the morning if you have certain goals, exercise in the late afternoon and early evening if you have other kinds of goals. So morning exercise mm -hmm. seems to be best. I think the greatest advantage for morning exercise is um, it gives you a exercise, aerobic and even strength training, gives you a very significant and enduring mood boost and um you know and that, that can last you know 10 12 hours so you exercise early in the day you get that mood boost throughout the day you exercise say at seven at night you're, you're going to sleep away some of your that that elevated mood um another thing uh, ec exercise in the morning seems to be better if you want to form the habit uh, i think that's because people are less likely to get interrupted or distracted at 7 a.m than at 5 a.m and then exercise in the morning seems to be better, slightly better for weight loss. Although, again, uh, yeah, the research on weight loss, it, it, it's, it's really hard to lose weight, basically. And so I don't want to oversell that proposition there. That said, exercise in the late afternoon and early evening has other advantages. First of all, it, um, it's a better way to avoid injury. Uh, there are fewer injuries later in the day. Um, that's probably because of body temperature and the fact that you're literally warmed up. I mean, again, it's an N of one. But I had I did a race a couple of weeks ago that started at the insanely early hour of 630. And it's the only it's the only race I've done that because I like to run like like half, uh, half marathons. Uh, it's the only race that I've done were, that I didn't finish because it started at this insanely early hour and I ended up injuring my hamstring uh, probably because I wasn't sufficiently warmed up. So it's better for avoiding injury. Uh, people who exercise later in the day report enjoying it more. Uh, for some people, morning exercise is just miserable. Uh, afternoon, that's how, I, that's how, that's how I, I feel. Like I like afternoon exercise so much better. Um, and, and then also, uh, there are actually performance benefits if you're interested in that. Uh, it, late in the afternoon and early evening, uh, our hand-eye coordination is better. We have higher lung function. Uh, there's some interesting effects on, on speed. Speed is greater. Excellent. Well, well, Dan, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Uh, as as I said, literally, I mean, legend. One of the guys that I love. When you have a new book come out, I always get it. The Thank new you. book, 
The new book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Um, if you want more of Dan, there you can always have more of Dan. He has a, a <laughs> podcast called uh, Pink Cast. You can go check out, you're going to love this, Dan. His TV show that he did, like in 2014, called Crowd Control. Uh, or just go to danpink.com. Any other way that they can they can get more of Dan Pink, Dan? That's great. Uh, you know, if you go to my website, danpink.com, I also do a biweekly uh, email newsletter that has you know all kinds of like reading recommendations, and also uh, every other week uh, gives people that that what you mentioned that a pink cast, which is a very short like ninety second video with a science based tool or tip. Always be closing. <laughs> Always be closing. We out. We out. Hi, I'm Emma. Thanks for listening to my dad, the Chad, and his buddy Cheese. This has been the Chad and Cheese podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Be sure to check out our sponsors because their money goes to my college fund. For more, visit ChadCheese.com. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.